This episode of the AD History Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you, supporting the show on Patreon. Join Odo's ADFite army at patreon.com slash adhistorypodcast, where you can enjoy new episodes 48 hours early, the special director's cut version of each episode, and more. Join us in creating the AD history you deserve, and go to patreon.com slash adhistorypodcast to learn more. Thank you. Have you ever wondered how the Roman Empire could have get their butts handed to them so badly? Or how one of their emperors became a British folk legend? Well, have we got a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. So much interesting stuff coming in this episode, 381 to 390. How are you today, Patrick? I'm great, Paul. I'm doing really well, and it's very exciting to be here. Yeah, we're really making headway on the 4th century AD. It's definitely been sort of an unraveling one, I would say. Like, if I had to ex- explain this century in one word, it would be kind of like the unraveling of this empire, especially the unraveling of like Christianity, of just the land itself. Yeah, I'm good, but how are you doing, Paul? Well, I'm all right. You know, I think both today are going to be episodes that, in mm. their own respect, definitely represent the idea that an institution is grand and epic and sprawling over time as the Roman Republic that is now the Roman Empire and is now the late Roman Empire most definitely is. Mm. And in this time around, and this is something I always love, is any time we get to visit some kind of history that happened on the Isle of Great Britain and that you are tackling that particular subject because there's always something interesting, something new outside of the history that you're presenting, a perspective that only someone like yourself being British could possibly present to us. Yeah, cheers. So it's like, I guess it's fortunate that I'm from somewhere that has like a recorded history of this time period. Yeah, yeah, some highly detailed recorded history. So see there's history from all over the world at this point. But, you know, Britain was quite a big focus of the Roman Empire. So we've got recorded history of it. And it's great always getting to cover. I've got a really interesting part of this because not only is this about Roman Britain, it kind of dovetails into like British folklore and mythology. But Paul, what have you got for us today? Well, today I'm wrapping up my two-part epic mm. of the Travingi Goths, Valen, and the disastrous or the Romans, <laughs> Battle of Adrianople. Because the one thing, and I will foreshadow this, we'll be obviously moving on to that segment here in a moment. Hmm. The performance of the Romans in so many ways in this battle, it's so emblematic of where that civilization is at the time and decade that we are covering. They are almost just Romans in costume, like they're play-acting Romans. That's a great way to put it. 
It's the only way I can think of it. I, I when I when I was learning more about this and and this is a huge tragedy. The battle, mm. Adrianople. It's right there with Totenberg Forest. It's right there with Cani. But you know, we'll we'll give this one to the listener in spades in yeah. just a moment. But this is gonna be fun. I'm looking forward to doing it. And with that in mind and all of it out of the way, it is time to lay down our necessary obligatory now legendary AD history podcast round rules. One, evaluate events in the context they occurred. Two, over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are and were important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it even 50 years ago. Three, nothing in history was inevitable. And four, history and the past is like a different country. Okay, so Paul, you are continuing your story about the great migration of Europe in from various parts of the world into Rome itself as we left off with our last episode. I'm looking forward to hearing where this goes next. Yes, the great migration that began in the late 4th century of a lot of the Germanic and Gothic people that were either living in the European steppes or north and or even east of the Rhine. And if you are not familiar with our previous episode, definitely go take a look at it, because this is part two of that story, specifically mm. the story of the Goths in the Eastern Empire when they attempted to, when they were granted a request to resettle in Rome. And... Naturally, as I mentioned in, in the previous episode, in part one, migration is not a new thing. It's been going on since humanity first took its you know, first steps erect. And, of course, as our species has developed, civilization has come with it. And when there's a migration, especially in terms of large amounts of people, from one area to another, especially one that is already populated, it can obviously create a lot of conflict, especially when the place that mm -hmm. they're migrating to doesn't even know that they're coming. Mm -hmm. It's a, a very difficult situation. It doesn't always result in violence, but many times that it does. And this is simply a reality of uh, the history of our species. And in this case, the reason why this migration was ultimately kicked off had everything to do with those that we know today as the European Huns, basically migrating from east to west, coming in over the Urals and now into the European steppe. And for those who are not familiar, a steppe is a geographic term for low-flowing flatlands that are most certainly the case in a lot of places in, mm. in Eurasia. The Huns, when they came in, you had several really bad options. You could fight with them, you could supplicate to them, you could collaborate with them, or you can flee. And the various Gothics people there, or the Allens, they did all of that on a case-by-case -case basis. And in the case of one particular portion of the Goths, in this case the Trevingi, they began making their way west, fleeing the Huns, because they feared them and they had good reason to fear them. They were fierce fighters, and mm. you're playing with fire with them one way or another. And they came to the Roman Empire, and they requested from Emperor Valens, who was Augusti in the East, permission to resettle in the Empire, which he granted. But, and you'll have to go back to the previous episode to get the full story, mm -hmm. what came about 
in what should have been a far more, not necessarily orderly, but far less chaotic situation when they were granted that request to resettle in the Empire, ended up going totally awry. And we are at a point now where everything is about to boil over because it is the start of a war that nobody anticipated and nobody was preparing for. And that is between the Goths, mainly the Trevingi, but we'll learn more about how their numbers rise. Mm -hmm. And now, in this case, Valens, who had already been dealing with his serious Sassanid problem, is now having a serious issue with the Goths up and around on the Danube that he wanted to avoid at all costs. And one of his underlings was very much responsible for making that the case. And so when we left off, there was this conflict that ended up breaking out in Marcianopolis due to a really bungled attempt by this underling by the name of Lupsinius, who was looking to basically dupe the various Gothic leaders that were encamped outside of the town of Marcianopolis and ultimately break them up entirely, in addition to the fact that even though Emperor Valens agreed to provide food for these Travingi Goths, it ended up getting totally bungled. And now, with the breakout of these hostilities, comes a war that no one anticipated. And mm. we continue on that story. And as the story of that faithful night in Marcianopolis gained steam, on its own momentum, it opened the floodgates of destruction. Everything was boiling over, Patrick. And under the leadership of whom we would know, Fritigern, who we mentioned in the prior episode, who was actually arrested by Lipsinius, ended up talking his way out, and he ended up becoming an unlikely war leader. And under his leadership, Goths of all stripes in the region began flocking to his ad hoc banner. And this included the aforementioned Grithingi, who actually had been rejected when they requested from Valens that they resettle in the Empire. In terms of the spreading word, I was talking in the previous episode about Adrian Goldworthy and the fall hmm. of Rome. Fantastic book. And he tells one story of how the story of what happened in Marcianopolis is making its way around. And there's this one instance where it got the attention of some Travingi Goths who had apparently already been conscripted and brought into the ranks of the Roman army, which was part of the agreement that the Travingi had made with Valens in exchange for their settling in the empire. Goldworthy mentions that they were preparing to deploy with their new legions to the conflict that was brewing over with the Sassanids, which obviously had the greater strategic importance. And apparently, in Adrianople, which is where that legion was at the time, a local official who appeared to have some kind of beef with these new Dravingi recruits, and in light of the growing revolt that they heard about, he assembled a, a poorly trained unit of local weapons craftsmen to clash with the Goths in their ranks. It, basically, it was a hastily put-together militia. And it was a choice that, you know, as far as the Goths were concerned, when they eventually encountered these folks, you know, basically, they cut them down like hot knife through butter, manhandled mm -hmm. them, and then ultimately took all of their 
newly made arms and put them to use for this growing Gothic army that no one expected to ever have to exist. Mm. And in addition to the Goths rallying together in the Svarvalt, the matter of the persistent hunger that the Trevingi had been experiencing since they showed up reared its head. And in the chaos of the conflict, stealing, raiding, pillaging was conducted all around the area, not just by the army, but by these basically near, you know, the Dravingi at that point were getting little more than starvation rations, and now they were taking advantage of the chaos so they could actually get food in their belly. And that's kind of hard not to sympathize with to some degree, especially if you're familiar with, in our prior episode, how poorly they had been treated. I don't need to go mm. back and, and recount that. Believe me, once, once was quite enough. So none of this should be a surprise. But even though their ranks began to swell and their cause began to pick up momentum, one thing that was undeniable in the case of this ad hoc goth army is that in the big picture is that it was not a war that could be won on the strategic basis. Tactically on the field, yeah, definitely. But in terms of accomplishing greater goals that would actually further the benefit of their own people, you know, they were somewhere between getting and hoping they could get what they originally agreed to and avoiding just outright annihilation. So despite the incredible draw of the rebellion that Fredegurn led, it was not a force with long-term prospects, and they, didn't, and they couldn't even easily define victory. In fact, conceptually, they lacked clearly articulated military aims or goals. And further, as a military force, they could not hope to overcome the Roman military machine in the longer run because of the resources. Eventually, Rome was going to get you at some point. That, and they were also dealing with nagging issues with resupply. They didn't have any heavy equipment that they could conduct sieges with, which is you know, a, a point of ancient warfare that lasted very close into the modern day that was very necessary because even though it's long and protracted, the fruits of that siege are usually pretty great and often led to things that an army desperately needed, but they didn't have those abilities. It was a very difficult situation. They were always fighting at a deficit. What is interesting to note, however, is that much of the fighting outside of the notable set-piece engagements that they had, and the most, <laughs> the most notable one being Adrianople, there was, they, mm. they conducted themselves in smaller bands, units, kind of doing hit-and-run guerrilla warfare type stuff. Because when you're in a situation where you're coming up against the Roman military machine on most occasions, you're probably not going to be able to defeat them in the field too easily or consistently. We've seen this happen a lot. The Romans are very good at that kind of warfare for the most point, for the most part. So you just mentioned Adrianople. So to give context, in my segment for this episode, I just hinted about a war going on which Rome lost. This is it. Are we correct in saying that? I believe this is the one. Yeah, this is the one. Yeah, Adrianople. So yes, indeed. We, we kind of hinted towards that. Now let's get the full picture oh, on it. You believe me, you're going to get more mm. and more in that. But they had these limitations and they couldn't really hope to get the Romans out in the field. But Every dog has its day. Mm. And for the Gothic forces, 
that had been coming to the banner of Fritigern that day was 9 August 378 AD. Mm. Adrianople, located in modern-day Edemi in European Turkey, just north of the Bosphorus, slash Istanbul, slash Constantinople, and the annals of Roman military history sit among the names such as Cannae mm. and the Totenberg Forest. When we're talking about Cannae and the Totenberg Forest, Patrick, does it get mm. much worse than that? Not particularly, no. No. And those were also, even though they were terribly embarrassing defeats, it didn't really hamper Rome in the long run. No, yeah. And a Roman army, you know, experienced what is believed to be a crushing defeat at the hands of the Goths led by Fredegar. Not only was it a crushing defeat for Rome, but it also resulted in the death of Emperor Valens at its head. Valens mm. in this conflict, Patrick, obviously very focused on the Sassanids. But when he heard about what was happening with the Goths and how this got out of hand, in 377, he made a hasty peace. Uh, from what I understand, because he was under such pressure, uh, he was um, a lot more willing to make concessions he wouldn't have made otherwise. But the fact of the matter is, he needed to get his own house in order from, from what his perspective were marauding mm. barbarians within his borders. And of mm. course, the big idea for Valens was to take his field army with the assistance of forces from the West sent by his nephew, Gratian, who we were talking about earlier. Yes, yeah. And crush the barbarian hordes. And mm. what followed from there was one miscalculation after another with a dash of hubris. And Valens in marching out of Adrianople to confront the Goth forces was a fateful decision. This is why, Patrick. The army sent by Gratian had actually been delayed a few days and wouldn't have arrived in time if indeed the battle was to take place on 9 August. But here's the puzzling part as I understand it, is that time was seemingly an ally for Rome. Valens did not, you know, was not in a time-sensitive scenario, and so waiting for Gratian's forces was an entirely viable option. And apparently a lot of his lower military commanders and the various people that he consulted with hmm. basically were telling him, why are we rushing this? We don't need to rush this. Let's wait a day or two. They're not going to be a threat to so us. Why so why didn't he wait? There's a lot of speculation on this topic. Mm. It's hard to say. It's hard to say. There is mm -hmm. some hint that perhaps one of the reasons that he did it is because he wanted all the glory for himself. And mm. given his kind of rash decision-making at this point, it's not implausible to imagine that, but from everything that he had done so far in terms of the decisions he made in terms of letting in the Dravingi Goss and prioritizing the Sassanids and agreeing with the food, he seemed like he was more practical than this, than, mm. than something that was, than, than the glory. I mean, as, as far as I know, there's nothing more honorable than victory in some eyes, and that's certainly the case in the, 
you know, mm. with the Romans, good God, you know, the most honorable thing is victory. Strength wins out. Yeah. And so it's very puzzling why he didn't wait because he didn't have to go and fight that day. But Valens proceeded all the same. Valens experienced an intelligence failure when his various agents and advanced recount mm. scouts reported a clearly smaller force of Goths than were actually present. And that's a really big deal. I mean, you you need yeah, better. Yeah, you kind of count. expect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and throughout history, the, the value of intelligence has kind of waxed and waned depending on where you were. Mm. Sao Sao would be, you know, absolutely spinning in his grave over this. <laughs> and he would, and, yeah. I, and believe you me, he would have a lot to say in praise for this ad hoc goth army. Anyway, though, later estimates conclude that the two sides actually were at parity in terms of manpower, where they had about 15,000 troops each. Mm -hmm. So for the most part, this is not one of those things necessarily that is going to be accomplished through just sheer manpower. That, And we've seen many battles throughout history where the smaller force ends up winning because there are many ways yeah. that you can win a battle. Yeah, it's not just about pure manpower. Oh, goodness, no. It has everything to do with the quality of troops, how they're mm. led, tactics, all of these things, good intelligence, deception, mm. all very important stuff. Manpower is important, but sometimes not as important as you think. Mm. And throughout this, in the, in the case of Fritigan, he actually sent a pair of a, a couple of different diplomatic envoys where the first one Valens just he didn't even give them an audience because he thought they were too low ranking so you know we're, we're talking about a guy who's very arrogant here you know but this hmm. is this is all kind of power for course at the time and then he sent a second one which apparently was actually some sort of Christian um, clergy that delivered mm -hmm. a message to Valens from Fritigern which was that we can end the fighting now if, if Valens peaceably granted the land to the Trevingi in Thrace that they were originally agreed upon to do. Because even at this point, the Goths had, had held mm. up their end of the bargain. Their boys were in Roman ranks prior to all this yeah. breaking out. Yes, yeah. No doubt. But this was not taken seriously either and you know there's a very real possibility that these two envoys in the eyes of valens suggested that either you know they're stalling for time or they don't think they can win and that there's an opportunity here mm. when in reality the opportunity was not one on the battlefield the opportunity was the possibility for a bloodless victory settled through diplomatic negotiation, which had he taken that route, I think things would have worked out far better, no doubt. But he ignored them, and he cast them aside. Mm. When battle finally commenced, it transpired into a comedy of errors, <laughs> unforced errors, uncharacteristic absence of tactical coordination, and overall lack of battlefield discipline that is the this celebrated is, hallmark of the Roman yeah. army with good reason. This isn't the well old machine we're used to, Paul, is it? 
Roman in name only. Mm. That that's basically room across the board at this rate, literally in name only. You know, they were powerful. They had the far greater mm. resources. You know, you can't beat them in the long run. But this, this is a joke. This should never have yeah. happened. The Roman. But here we are. Yeah, the Romans in battle that day were exemplars of the military adage: defeat mm. is one thing, disgrace is another. And of their estimated 15,000 strong army under Valens, it's believed they lost 10,000 at Adrianople. By God. That is 66% casualty rate. Yeah. Yeah. That's insane. Now, anytime you are in an ancient battle, especially of this era, when one side gets the upper hand and they get the initiative, and warfare is all about the initiative, whether it's on the strategic mm. level whether it is on the tactical level. When the Goths got the initiative and eventually broke the day and then basically started chasing off the Roman army from the field, it, it mm. turned into a slaughter, an mm. absolute slaughter. 10,000 at Adrianople. And one of those... That's, that's yeah, big numbers. And one of those casualties was Valens himself. Yes. All against a Gothic yeah. army that, while to its credit, enjoyed battlefield-hardened Goths of all stripes in its ranks, because once again, the Goths are not this one monolithic people. Mm. They come from all over. They have commonalities and culture and whatnot, but they're not a single thing. No. But they came together for this. They came together through circumstance to fight a war they, that they never anticipated. Literally a, a hodgepodge army against the Rome, and the hodgepodge army won. Good leadership, motivation, and the greatest motivation being failure and defeat simply was not an option. Because in this case, had they been defeated, mm. it wouldn't have just been a matter of, oh, pay a certain sum of money, give this up land, and then see you later. Not only would they either have been killed, taken prisoner, or brought into slavery, chances are their, their families and communities would have suffered the same fate. And that's just not acceptable. And what happened with the city of Adrianople itself? Did it get sacked? Or like <laughs> destroyed? Did it get... What happened with it? They tried. Mm. Oh, they tried. But remember what I was saying about the Goths having limited military capabilities mm. in terms of like lacking heavy equipment and, and weapons and things of that nature, things you need to you know, conduct a siege? Mm. That became very apparent here. Those reared their head without question. When they approached Adrianople itself, they were hoping to raid it for the food, weapons, and cash that was stashed there, of course. But they were actually repelled by the units Valens had left behind to protect the city. So it looks like Valens did one thing right that day, amazingly. <laughs> and so Adrianople was actually pretty close by to Constantinople. Um, so was Constantinople ever under actually threat? I guess that depends on how you define threat. <laughs> yeah. They were close by, yeah. And when things yeah. were not panning out in Adrianople, they decided, hey, you know what? Let's go uh let's go try our luck in Constantinople. That played out in a more extreme form. One is because when they got there, they were just blown away by the size and scope of that city. You know, cuz it's only what second yeah. to Rome, Alexandria and Antioch at that point. It was one of the, yeah. I mean, it's the capital of the Eastern Empire, goodness, and its importance is going to last for another thousand years. Yeah. And on top of that, they, they were absolutely shoot off. The, that was trying to bite off more than they could chew. 
Yeah, like I said, this like even though they were able to beat Rome, they were still just a big old tribe of goths, random goths. It was like, yeah, wow. so they couldn't really amount to much else. But it's still very impressive what they did. But these weren't the only goths in the empire. There were other goths living elsewhere across the empire. Yeah, they, they have any issues about this? Oh yeah, and that that's really really kind of an awful thing here. It's interesting that you should you should mention that because mm. there were numerous documented events and incidents where the goths living elsewhere in the empire that either had nothing to do with this may not have even been aware of it but when the story got out of what had happened there mm. you know they they were a lot of them ended up getting rounded up beaten or just flat out murdered this is something like we see in history anyway when a group of people somewhere are affected other people kind of get thrown into the mix yeah. a great example I mean, a really great contemporary example is with there were so many reports of racism towards Chinese people in the breakout of COVID-19. It's kind of that sort of effect to a degree, like these people being thrown under the bus because of something else happening somewhere else. It's just, yeah, everyday people that yeah, had, no had, had nothing to do with it. And and even right now, yeah, if we're, yeah, if we're, if we're talking much it. much more recently. Much more contemporary as well, well yes. Um, there, there, a lot of Russians have been experiencing that as well. Of course, yeah. And just like their Chinese yeah, counterparts, they have no hand in it. When people are like like down with Russia, I'm like, no, like don't throw all of Russia under the bus with this. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with very, you more, actually. It's some very particular people who are making that happen. It's not, it's not Russia as a whole. It's just particular people who are from Russia, who are Russian. Why is this happening? But it's not, it's not Russia as a whole. No, it's not. In that case, it's no. Vladimir Putin as a whole. Mm-hmm, so it, mm-hmm. Hum- we've talked about that enough. Yeah, before. humans are going to human. Yeah, exactly. Regardless of what country they're from, but by winning at Adrianople, uh, did this uh, did the Goths actually gain anything from this victory? Did they get that land they so desperately wanted? Hmm. <laughs> That's interesting. Mm. So right off the bat, they didn't gain as much as you think in the short term. So in some ways, as I mentioned, their only option was to win, and Adrian mm. Goldworthy put it quite perfectly. They had everything to lose in defeat and very little to gain than in there in victory. It was win to survive. It wasn't even win to gain anything. It was just, we just have to win this. Absolutely. So given their military mm. uh, limitations, ranging from supply to their disposition to want to fight, to avoid fighting and operating as a large force for long periods of time, and not really having the ability to do the things like conduct, once again, a proper siege and a worthwhile target, they really couldn't coerce the same level of war booty that a traditional field army could. And every time they tried, mm-hmm. they were generally thwarted in their efforts. Like you said, they couldn't even sack the city. They just defeated. Exactly. Yeah. And what happened to the Goths from here? Is this their big shining moment or do they reign the years to come? So it became kind of a more dispersed, low intensity conflict. And I mentioned here mm-hmm. how a lot of times they preferred to fight in in smaller bands, hit and run, that kind of thing. In fact, the Romans actually began adopting those tactics as well against them, with a good deal of success, might I add. But basically, the last of the Goths to you know basically give up, because they were just chasing them all over the place, it took six years after Adrianople for the last of the Goths to say, fine, all right, well, we're done. And basically around 382. But that makes it sound like they eventually were to meet a dark fate. 
And despite how dark this particular chapter that we've shared here in AD history mm-hmm. has been at times, quite the opposite occurred. And mm-hmm. in achieving an eventual, solid, lasting peace, Prome actually granted them exactly what the Goths had wanted since showing up on the banks of the Danube in 276. Happy ending for once. Yeah, they were given their land grant in Thrace. And and to sweeten the deal is that as far as their local leaders, they were actually given a, a good deal more local autonomy than usually was the SOP in that case over their own affairs. And I can only imagine that the biggest reason why is because of how well they fought and ultimately how stubborn they were. Because the Romans still looked upon the Trevingi and and the various Goths that they had agreed to come in as definitive assets. They knew that having them in the ranks of their own army was an incredible benefit. They just spent six years proving it. Not that you know, that's they didn't know at the beginning. And mm. so between that hard fought fight, their stubbornness, and the Romans' clear desire to want to say, Fine, can we please end this? We'll give you what you want, because if they had crushed and destroyed the Goths ultimately, which at one point was not unthinkable, but over the long run kind of cooler heads and better planning prevailed they ultimately would have ended up destroying the very thing that they wanted. That's really quite incredible. Mm. But here, Patrick, let's look at the final accounting of this thing. Because back in the the beginning of, in the last episode, in part one, I was talking about how, when we look back on it, is it hindsight that we see that this thing was so clearly avoidable? Or was it that obvious to those who were calling the shots Mm. at the time. You and I like taking this perspective view of history from the view of the people who are there who have no idea what's going to happen next. Yeah, yeah. And it's amazing. It's easy for us to sort of see as a big, knowing the end result, but it's always good to think what it would have been like in the present. I I feel like that is probably one of the most important and fruitful exercises in in Mm. all of history. But... You know, there are still so many critical elements about what happened that we just don't know, especially Mm. when we look at the decision to grant permission for the Dravingi to settle in the empire and the promise by Valens for Rome to provide them food. But what is interesting about this, if I were to extrapolate being in Valens' place when that agreement was reached, it seems most likely he was operating on either incorrect information or at least incomplete information, especially when you view his track record and priorities at the time. I kind of was mentioning this a little bit earlier. And he was desperate to keep matters under control when he was dealing with the Sassanids in terms of what was happening with those Goths that were showing up on the banks of the Danube. And for me, at Mm. least, it seems inconceivable that he would have knowingly taken an approach that jeopardized that priority that he sacrificed so much towards which is to say that it seems very unlikely that he was ordering that the Dravingi only receive near-starvation rations to make them more cooperative. He could have Mm. only achieved what he wanted by at least agreeing to keep the belly of those Goths full. And it seems to me, based on what we've said, that a lot of it 
he's either operating on incorrect information or incomplete information. And Lord knows, it sure does seem that in terms of those who were on the ground on the Roman side who were in charge of all of this, mm. probably are the ones to blame for a combination of just clear mistreatment and on top of obvious corruption and just bungling it to the point where you have to legitimately question their competency, not their ruthlessness, not their greed, but their competency. And it's amazing that, because, yeah. and I'll leave it at this, some people think that incompetency is a lack of an ability. I don't agree with this definition. Mm. I think incompetency is a very special ability to take a situation that can be easily and successfully dispatched with and finding new and interesting ways to screw it up. And that very much characterizes so much of the Dravingi experience mm. from the moment they, lay, they found themselves on the banks of the Danube requesting settlement in the empire. And that is what I have for you today in completing this two-part epic. It was quite the epic indeed, Paul. It's such a great, it's fundamentally a great underdog story, isn't it? <laughs> if you break it down, like it's just a great, this band of, <laughs> you can see in like Hollywood perspective, this band of misfits take on the almighty Roman Empire and win. I mean, it's just, it's a great story to hear. And it definitely, it was definitely worthy of being in two parts, that's for sure. Well, I don't think I could put it any better than to say praise from Caesar. Exactly. Praise from Caesar, indeed. Us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from one. Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at AD History PC and the hashtag AD History. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash AD History Podcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. Mr. Foot. You have, anytime we do a segment, and we're lucky enough that a subject allows it, mm. where you are able to go into your homeland, the isle that you are native to, and especially discussing ancient history there, you mm. have quite a track record, and you're about to yeah. add to that today, with one Maximus, Magnus Maximus. Yeah, so thank you, Paul. And it, it, it is crazy to think that in the early days of this show, we saw the Romans come and claim the island of Great Britain in around 48, I believe. And throughout its highs and lows from Bodicea to Hadrian's Wall and everything in between, we're actually starting to enter the last days of Roman rule on this island I call home. 
and Britannia, as they called it. It would be under Roman rule for just a few more decades. However, they would not be quiet years, as it was in the decade of today's show that an emperor from this island rose up. He was elevated up by his troops, like we've seen so often now, to become emperor of the West. And the strangest thing about this all, he actually ended up not really by his own choice, becoming a folk hero of ancient Britain. This being, as you mentioned, Paul, one Emperor Magnus Maximus. And I don't mean to jump ahead here, but I Mm. do find it interesting that this particular folk hero Mm. seems to carry, if I understand Latin naming conventions correctly, the Mm. name Maximus, who also happens to be a Spaniard. Does this not sound a little familiar to you? No. Yep. Someone with a name like Maximus being Spanish, speaking with a British accent, it is definitely coming to mind when I heard that. Huh, that is interesting. So Magnus Maximus really could have been an inspiration for our favorite Maximus. Well, my favorite Maximus. (laughs) There is no other Maximus. (laughs) No. Uh, From Gladiator, of course. Um, I, I don't know. I don't think that came up during our research when we watched Gladiator. No, um, I think, heck, heck, they may not have even no. known. You know? No, I mean, Maximus is such a great definitive Roman name. Like, it's hard to, it's hard to beat oh, it. Yeah. When, you're, when you're making like a generic Roman character for a film like Gladiator, you can't really beat the name Maximus. But this it's like guy, the name Max Power. Exactly, yeah. This guy had it here too, Magnus Maximus. And as you mentioned, he is actually a Spaniard, despite being so linked with Britain. He was born in supposedly 355 AD to a noble family in modern Galicia, which is the sort of northwest of modern-day Spain. Uh, he was supposedly the cousin of then-emperor of the East, Theodosius I. Uh, remember that, because that that, 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 that's kind of something that's happened. And it kind of gave him credibility and sway later down the line, as we will see. However, he was initially raised to be a soldier and commander. And for a lot of his campaigns, he served under Theodosius the Elder, who was father of Theodosius I. He was father of the emperor. Like I said, he had real ties to Theodosius I, who gave him... Oh, yeah, he was connected. Yeah, it gave him a degree of credibility in the long run as well when things were to happen. So rising through the ranks of the military, he became, this, he became a really distinguished general of the Roman army. And he traveled all across the empire in the military. He had victories in Africa and on the Danube and even in Britain. And he actually ended up being stationed in Britain after doing all this in 380 AD. So around the start of today's episode decade. And it was in Britain he was the supreme military commander. Uh, So that means he was basically top dog for Roman Britain at that time. He was the highest authority more or less there. Mm especially in regards to the military. Maximus had a real history in Britain as well, as I mentioned. He actually helped bring something called the Great Conspiracy, which listed from 367 to 368 under control there. <laughs> the Great Conspiracy? It was this kind of event. It's, something I, it's probably something I'll look at when we do what we miss for this decade, for this century. I'll probably have a look into it. Okay. Uh, it was all of a sudden a huge coalition of like Celtic tribes, Picts, the Scots, uh, all kind of just all of a sudden descended onto Hadrian's Wall at the same time. And we're not quite sure how it happened. We don't know if they were organized, if it was a coincidence. Like I said, it was this great conspiracy. 
Some believe that it was a sort of a sabotage attempt. We don't entirely know. That's why it was this conspiracy, but whatever it was. That would be a hell of a coincidence. Exactly. Hence, hence, hence why the tinfoil hat to come in out, Paul. So, <laughs> um, Has aluminum even been invented yet? Uh, it would be hence like the tin hat or something like that is coming <laughs> out. But um, it's, it's a really interesting subject. Let's just dip our toes into it there. But it's definitely probably something I'll talk about and what we missed when yeah. we get to that point for this decade. Sure. Uh, but by 3818, he'd already stopped the rebellion of Scots and Picts yet again. So it, he was well known in Britain and really well liked there. And he was a pretty popular guy. And his rise in popularity kind of coincided with uh, the dwindling popularity of the other Roman emperor of Grecian. He would have been sort of so. We had Theodosian in the, uh, so he was emperor of the West at the time, basically. That's what I'm saying. You know, it's interesting because mm. for the most part, Gratian was still a fairly young man. I mean, mm. I believe he became Augusti when he was in his, like, mid-teens. Wow. Yeah, well, put it this way. We'll talk about it a little bit later, but mm. his younger half-brother, uh, Valatian II, Mm. is even more extreme, but we'll get to that in a bit. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll go over there. And Grecian's popularity was dwindling for a couple of reasons. Rome had recently lost a certain battle with some certain people, which I'm not going to talk about too much here, Paul. Uh, so I won't talk about that too much. But what, what I will mention here is not only had uh, Rome lost the battle under Grecian, Grecian had actually started dressing up kind of in the same fashion as the people they just lost the battle against. And he started getting people who he lost his battle against as his own private bodyguards. And this really kind of alienated the Roman soldiers and made them feel frustrated. Like, hey, we just got our ass kicked by these guys, the Allens. I don't know why I'm being coy with their names, the Allens, as we'll talk about more. And all of a sudden, you're dressing like an Allen and you're having Allens as bodyguards. And Paul, you've had a lovely picture of some Allen of fashion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was curious, what did they look like? And I, I I found a couple of pictures because there's a. Mm. If you're listening to this, there's at least an outside possibility that Mm. you might be a reenactor. And which is, even though I I personally don't have any desire to do it, I would actually love to go to one of the events because these guys are really into it. Yeah, and so you know, naturally, there's stuff out there for people that. Want to react various part reenact various parts of history and the Allens or the Alani, depending on what you want to call them. And you know, right now we'll bring up a picture on on the YouTube, the video side of things. But those mm. of us are just listening, and the two figures in the picture there. I look at the young man on the right, especially his headwear, and he looks like he could be a Russian boyar from the 16th century wearing that. I was thinking it looks distinctly Slavic. This um fashion. Oh yeah. It has a real, even like the big fur coat of the um, older guy there, the father for all intents and purposes. Like, yeah, it looks like really they're wearing need, some sort of felt boot. Yeah, you wouldn't really need clothes like that in Rome, in, in the Roman Empire. Like, it doesn't particularly get sort of cold, cold like that in like Iberia or that sort of thing. So, no, it definitely did have like a Slavic look to it. Yeah, that and they're, they're very earthy tones as well. Mm. You know, when you think about the Romans and their sense of fashion, it's, it's much more ostentatious by comparison, because obviously you mm. look at something like purple, which was extremely expensive because it was very hard to, to mm. create, or reds or just like those really just outstanding whites. 
here just a lot more earthy tones and um a lot of adaptation to the climate that undoubtedly they would have had to endure at least part of the time mm. living in that part of Europe. No, totally. It's um it's just interesting to see, and like I said, just sort of made frustration in the Romans saying, Hey, you just beat us. No, they they just beat us and now you're dressing like them. You see why people get get annoyed and this you can't, of- you can't blame them. No, no, you can't blame oh no, definitely no, you definitely cannot blame them. And this sort of frustration actually led to Maximus's troops in Britain declaring Magnus Maximus their emperor, as we've seen so often now. And that was in 383 AD. And <laughs> it's, it's definitely a theme that is best of yeah, AD history at this yeah. point. Every time a person was declared emperor by their troops, take a take, take a swig. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers to that. Thanks, Magnus. Um But as I mentioned, kind of something else to help back up this claim was those family ties to Theodosius uh, I. He he was supposedly his cousin. He'd worked alongside his father. That gave him credentials. It gave him a worthy reason why he could be seen as a worthy emperor. He he was from the bloodline. He had had connection. So that kind of helped back him up more so than other barracks emperors as we've seen in the past. And becoming emperor was something Maximus was more than happy about. And the first thing Maximus wanted to do was remove that no-good Grecian from power, and he left Britain and headed to Gaul. And it was in Gaul that he collided with Grecian, and he defeated Grecian easily. And after this battle, Grecian was left with really little hope and support, and he was actually assassinated in uh, August 838 AD. 838. 838. That's what I read. Yeah. That that would be an impressive longevity. So, Paul, here's a fun fact about me, and here's a fun fact for the listeners. I have diagnosed myself with uh, number dyslexia. I don't know if it's a real (laughs) thing, but I very consistently will get numbers mixed up. When I used to work on a till in in a supermarket, Mm Mm-hmm. If someone's shopping came to £24.38, I would say that's £42.84 or whatever. Like, I, I have a real bad habit of getting numbers mixed up. So even though I've written 838 here, what I mean is 383 AD. That's, <laughs> that's my stupid brain. Honestly, it happens. I'm amazed that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> so far in this show. I'm just busting your chops. But no, no, that's very silly. I mean, no, he didn't live an extra 400 <laughs> years, four, 500 years. Um, so yeah, Gratian, dead. August 383 AD. He's gone. He's knackered. Uh, Gratian's half-brother, Valentian, Valentia II, he became emperor of the Italian peninsula. There mm-hmm. were Theodosius I, still emperor over in the east. Uh, Maximus didn't let this stop him, however. So eventually, after mediations, this empire was once again split into three. And Maximus was given rule of Britain, Gaul, and Hispania. And I guess that leaves Valentian with like the Italian peninsula, probably the Balklands as well. As we saw it during the crisis of the third century, that kind of split, we saw the empire go into that three-way split. I imagine something like that with Theodosius I still over in the east. Which is all what what matters really these well, days. Over in the east, well, at this point, no, Valens would be dead at this point. That's right. Mm. Um, yes, yeah, Theodosius the, is emperor now. Yeah, yeah. So, and you know, really, just the, the last, I believe, Theodosius 
is the last emperor to rule rule the entirety of the empire at one point. That is very much true, yeah. Uh, That hasn't happened yet. I believe that's in the fallout of all of this. So Theodosian is the last emperor to rule the entire empire. empire. However, it's not like he got the entirety then east. I think he got east then the entirety. Yeah, you know, Theodosius was an interesting character because his father was a, a great soldier. Mm. Uh, he didn't have, Theodosius didn't have any of that ability, but he was an incredible organizer, which is interesting. Yeah. But, you know, you're, you're looking at this triumvirate that, that sprung up, which obviously predates uh, Magnus Maximus and his usurping. Mm. And one of the more interesting elements of the, this triumvirate that existed at the time mm. is that, you know, you and I had talked about how there's this uh, growing schism between East and West, and it's going to mm. get bigger, especially because not too long from now, you know, right now and, and coming into it, yeah, we had it east and west, but you could transfer assignments between them. And mm. it's going to start becoming cut off where they're, they're starting to operate almost exclusively within their own domains. There's no, there's less and less cooperation. But, and then uh, it's more even than just the lacking the common ground and identity. This is interesting. So initially, those who served in the higher ups in government administration, when Gratian, uh, Valencia II and Valens were in charge, were actually long, long-serving holdovers from Julian, hmm. uh, which is really unusual because it would be a lot more turnover than this in most cases. And they were a very powerful clique of military commanders and civilian officers. And because these three and their very short-lived dynasty was not uh, powerful enough, they were kind of at the uh, at the mercy of these guys and, and keeping them happy. And obviously the, the greatest exercising of that power was when Valentinian I died quite unexpectedly, actually pretty much stroked out when he was in a fit <laughs> of rage. And then they made his youngest son, Valentinian II, who was four years old at the time, <laughs> the Augusti in the Italian peninsula. So, I mean, th- th- this whole place is kind of all, all over the place. That, and they were very, very, very clear in their desire for the Empire to remain in this kind of schism because that schism guaranteed that, you know, they would be able to keep their plumb positions and they would only ever accede to the Empire coming mm. into one, uh, unless it's being done forcibly, if they knew that they would maintain those positions in, the, in a unified form. So... Ultimately, it all comes down to the governmental reality that perfectly extracted, you know, basically perfectly illustrates the old political adage, functionaries shall inherit the earth, or in this case, the empire. Very interesting stuff. Paul, thank you very much for sharing that with us. No, it's not even one empire anymore, is it really? I know, granted, we're going to have one last person to rule it all, but it's so, East and West is so, you know, that... Those differences are kind of like differences we see on the planet today in Europe. It's kind of it's getting yeah. to that level at this point. These aren't this isn't one big unit anymore. This is just it's breaking up whether they want to accept that or not. Yeah, this thing's on life support. But Maximus's time in rule was kind of interesting. One of the first things he did as a ruler of Western Rome, as we'll refer to it, as even though it did include Italy in our places, he actually wanted to uh, have his own capital. And he chose a city called Trier, T-R-I-E-R. Yes. And this yeah, is in yeah. modern day Germany. And this is, a, this is clearly Trier's time in the spotlight because I don't think many people outside of Germany, if you tell people to, hey, name some cities in Germany, I think it'll be a long time before they reach Trier. 
Assuming they ever do. Assuming they ever do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. This is clearly its claim to fame that it was actually once a capital of Rome. It was once capital of the Roman Empire, this little city. That's incredible. And thought, yeah, and it's from here he ruled his land, ruled over his land. And he actually had quite a few military reforms as well. Obviously, he was a military man, so that was kind of a way he put a lot of his attention in. So what were these reforms? Well, something he did quite noticeably is he used something called the Foderati. I think I pronounced that right. And this kind of kind of ties into something you were talking about. And that was sort of treaties. These Foderati, they were treaties between Rome and non-Roman tribe members to work together. And as I mentioned, this kind of fits in with what you were saying, Paul, about how this great migration, people coming into the empire, uh, mm. making use of them, making use of them as soldiers. And this meant Maximus had soldiers of like Germanic roots under his control. And I just find yeah. this, I find this so strange because Gratian, the emperor before him, he was killed. He was just killed for cozying up to non-Romans, for, for dressing like an Alan. So it's just so flippant, it feels like. Yeah, I mean, the Romans had interesting relationships with mm. all these people because, you know, we've talked in our show about how times where they've allied with certain Germanic tribes to go and mm. take on somebody else. And just like how I was mentioning the Goths out in the, uh, the European steppes contracting mm. Hun warriors, the Romans did the same thing with the Goths and even the Huns. So... Mm. They can be so particular and, and very selective at times. You know, it's one of those things where don't look for consistency because you're going to be very disappointed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's just it's just something funny. I noticed how his predecessor was hated for being non-Roman, but he's being celebrated for, for doing non-Roman things. Roman. That and you have to imagine they had yeah. other, you know, un, you know, publicly unstated reasons for wanting to kill Gratian as well. Yes, yes. Yeah. And uh, Maximus was also a strict Christian, which just shows us just how how embedded mm. Christianity has become in Rome by now. Yeah. And he persecuted anyone who stood against his beliefs. And uh, one of the most noticeable cases of this was with a Spanish nobleman called Priscillian. 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 Let's go Priscillian for now, shall we? Uh, Priscillian held beliefs that conflicted with the church's views. Uh, this, he believed that Light and darkness existed in everyone equally, which is a concept known as dualism. This is like a, like I said, we're still at this point in history where what Christianity Christianity is, is still kind of somewhat being debated, or at least in this sort of way. Obviously, there's still different sects of Christianity at the moment, but still kind of making that foundation of it, it seems. You know, there are certain theological circles within various mm. elements of Christianity that, that still debate dualism and absolute dualism today. Obviously, yeah. they're not duking it out in the same way. No, no. This but, obviously, this really went against the creation story. Dualism was not part of the Old Testament in Rome at that time. And this led to a synod being run by Maximus. And as a result, uh, Priscillian and his most loyal supporters were charged with crimes of magic, which is a hell of a thing to huh. be charged with. And Yeah, mm, I would say so. Yeah, and then they were killed after this. And Maximus even sent troops to Hispania to quell any more hearsay. Anyone rising in favor of Priscillian over in Hispania was sentenced to death as well. So it, it was a pretty tough time. What's interesting about this is Priscillian and his followers, they supposedly hold a pretty noticeable title in the history books. They are actually seen as the first heretics in history to be subject to state execution. That's a pretty that, big deal, supposedly. This is from one source I read. 
I'd be curious how you would go about verifying that claim. I guess it's on record. You look for the oldest one on record. Uh, go, that's the oldest one we know about. Okay, so it's the oldest one we know about. Yeah, okay. potentially. That's how I see most of these sort of things when something says like that. Oh, you know, that... that, that, that. Yeah, if it's, <laughs> that, that that is completely fair yeah. on an intellectual basis. I heard that I was like, man, I, you figure somebody would probably have been killed for that yeah. by, at this point. I guess it's killed by the state specifically. Okay, um, yeah. yeah, okay, fair um, enough. When, when, most time when I hear it's the first thing, I'm like, that's the first thing that we know of. That's kind of like the unwritten rule. If something's ever the first thing in history, it's the first thing that we know of in history because people probably did it beforehand and just didn't make a big deal about it. Talking about death. This brings us on to uh, Maximus's own death. And as we see so often, the love for these barrack emperors can flip on the dime. And this appears to have been the case yet again for Maximus. Uh, by 387 AD, he wanted to expand his part of the empire. And he marched his army into Italy. And its emperor, Valentia II, he fled. Valentia II went eastward and asked for help from Theodosius I, Maximus's cousin, as we mentioned. So Theodosius I and Valentia II, they joined forces to attack Maximus. And the three of them, Theodosius I, Valentia II on one side, and Maximus on the other side, they met in modern-day Croatia. And this was the Battle of Save, Save? Mm -hmm. In yeah. uh, 388 AD, not 838 AD, 388 <laughs> AD. I got that one written down. Correctly. Oh, don't be so hard on yourself. <laughs> um, but here, Maximus was crushed in defeat by the joint forces of Theodosius I and Valentian II. Um, absolutely obliterated because, you know, two armies, not only going to, you know, simple numbers game, not going to work out for you. Uh, Maximus pleaded for mercy. He was like, you know, okay, I back down. Sorry. Uh, but it didn't work out for him. And he too, like his predecessor, uh, Gratian, he was executed on the 28th of August, 388 AD. So both were executed in August. So that's quite an interesting little fact there. And this is something I found really mad. To, just to make sure his legacy wouldn't live on, he was actually scrubbed from history books. But the thing was most harrowing is his eldest son was supposedly strangled to death I'm not saying I'm oh. condoning the death of anyone, but we're kind of numb to elder sons being killed in, in AD history by now because that was just, they were seen as the next in line. They seemed to have, to have the claim claim to the throne. So I get killing an elder son, for better or worse, but strangling to death, that's a hell of a way to go. Uh, yeah, truer words were never spoken. Oh, goodness. Yeah, yeah. So that's the life of Maximus. Talk and that's making a point. Yeah, uh, that's the historic life of Magnus Maximus. But as I said, one of the strangest things about Maximus is his role in British history. He's become like a folk hero in Britain, and he even has this accompanied story. And when I say Britain, he's particularly beloved in Wales. And he's even been given like a specific Welsh name, and that is Maxon Vweledig. Maxon Welledig, like Welsh is a pretty tricky language anyway, so believe I'm pronouncing that somewhat correctly. Um, what if this is in English, however, I don't think we really know. I think he's even known as Maximus, Mag Magnus Maximus, or by his Welsh name, Maxon Welledig. It, it, it's a fascinating story. And 
And this Welsh title in English roughly translates to meaning the imperator. So it's very much a title for him. This Matsin Weledig means the imperator, Magnus Maximus. It's a, it's a really interesting story. And as I said, this guy has an accompanying British folklore going along with him. And it's this super convoluted story, Paul. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and explain it as well as I can. I even take full notes for it here. Because it's just so strange. So it begins with him out hunting and falling asleep and having a dream where he meets his dream girl. There's some wise men in it as well. And then he wakes up and he searches the entire Roman Empire to find this dream girl. But while at the same time, there's a British king who's close to dying and he has a very beautiful daughter. And uh, Magnus meets up with this dying king and realizes that this beautiful daughter is the woman of his dreams. And then she, he, this king goes on to die. They get married. He becomes the new king. It's a really convoluted story. Like, it's so bizarre. What's if the any- origin of it? I mean, I, I know coming out, out of um, the Welsh tradition, yeah? Yeah, it, it, it's proper mythology. It, it really is like, it's a myth about a real person. Like we know Magnus Maximus existed. We, we we know from a historical perspective this was a guy who was a general in Britain. He became uh, a barracks emperor in the West. But for some reason in Wales in particular, he's become like a folklore hero. And there is kind of evidence we'll talk about in a moment. Obviously, all mythology and all folklores start in some grain of truth, right? And there is, we know for sure that grain of truth. But how it became this is just so strange. He could have got mixed up over the years with another person from British history, another character. It's a really strange one. It's, it's a super convoluted story. This, you can, there'll be a link down below for you can read a retelling of this story. Um, it's just really long-winded and bizarre. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, it, I mean, at least the way you presented it to me, it's so out of left field. It is. And... On top of this, this story then sort of goes on to explain that he freed Britain and Wales of Roman rule. That's kind of his claim in the myths that he was the one who got rid of the Romans from Britain. And we kind of got to ask ourselves, like, is this true? Did he really free Britain of Rome? And as I said, like most myths, there's a degree of truth in it somewhere. And Maximus didn't really fight Romans off the island. You know, he was a Roman. He, for all intents and purposes, he was one of them. He was from Spain. He was a Roman general. He was. He's not going to fight his own people. But his real history, his real history, however, is actually thought to play a role in Rome, eventually losing Britain. And as I mentioned, when he became emperor, Maximus left Britain and went to go reside in Gaul, in modern-day Germany, that that German city we talked about. And this left Britain without a strong commander. Britain was left without anyone in charge, really. And this made it easier for the local Picts and Scots and other tribes to reclaim the land there. And this is especially the case in Wales. As we've talked about in the past, it took... So Rome claimed Britain in 40 AD. I don't think it would be until 70 or maybe even 170 AD until they got Wales. It took a lot longer to get Wales. It was much tougher land to maintain because further afield, tougher geography. The locals there, the local Celtic tribes were a bit more high up on the defense. It, Wales was always hard for Rome to keep full lock on. 
And this kind of helped that Wales was one of the first, it was one of the last pieces of Britain they got and one of the first bits they lost of seeing in Scotland either. I'm curious, the fact that the Romans had a lot of trouble mm. um, locking down Wales, mm. does, is that in any way part, uh, in any way part, partly contribute mm. to modern Welsh culture today? I personally, and this is going off my own theory. I yeah, well, I mean, this is your home, man. Yeah, I personally think there is there is a very strong Welsh identity from the language itself. Welsh is, if you were to ask a lot of people, hey, name a language spoken Britain other than English, I'm sure a lot of people would say Welsh. It's got a very established official status as a language in the the, the country of Wales. Uh, well, Welsh has got a very strong identity. I think because it wasn't as influenced by Rome, it did it allowed its own culture to flourish and be, be celebrated more. I really do think that it has played a big factor in it, yeah. But um, so speaking of Wales, the last sort of dates we have for a strong Roman presence in Wales kind of matches up with Maximus leaving to go to Gaul. So this really kind of, this is, I said it all sort of, it, it's all kind of that myth it's all in a sort of clearly some sort of grain of truth. We clearly have evidence that when Maximus left, so did a lot of Roman control in Wales. And that's why he's much more celebrated in Wales. It, it really implies to us that without him there, the Welsh reclaimed this land from Rome. So did he free <laughs> Rome? Did he free Britain from Roman rule? Potentially, because as we know, Britain fell. Rome lost Britain a few decades down the line. Yeah. It could be seen that he did help this, but he didn't intend on doing it. It's not like he freed it. He just happened to disappear. And without him there, they could go on. That wasn't his, it wasn't his intention on getting rid of Roman rule from Britain. It was kind of like a side effect of what he did. I just find that really fascinating how that has potentially evolved into this myth of him being this great king. But it kind of just happened because he wasn't there. We've run into this a lot in 80 history. Mm. We're definitely seeing this a lot in today's episode, which is unintended consequences, mm. whether it be Maximus and in some way contributing unexpectedly to the end of Roman rule in Britannia, or whether it be what's happening in Adrianople. Mm. Or think about this, we were talking about the division between east and west of Rome. You go back 70-odd years to when Diocletian, in his reforms, made that an administrative thing. And when mm. he did it, he was doing it to improve administration in the empire. Never for a moment would he have considered that over time it would create a greater and greater divide, and I'd be very curious to see what his reaction would have been. Mm. No, it would have been interesting to see, yeah, but I, I, I don't know if we have it or not. <laughs> yeah, we can only speculate. Yeah, but that's that's it, really. I just find this one so fascinating. How this guy, and when I say he's a British folklore hero, I must admit I hadn't have heard I hadn't heard of him before this. If you were to speak to a Welsh person, maybe he's more well known. There, I said he seems to be a really big deal in Wales. There's a lot more. He doesn't folklore. seem to be any. He doesn't seem to be a Boudicca, to be sure. No, 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 definitely not. And and Boudicca Bodicea is another great example of that. There was a real historic person there, but that sort of myth, that legend has spiraled around them. And we'll see it with like Robin Hood as we go on down the line. He's another great example. We, I don't, 
his real history is a bit more up in the air, but it's clearly just another one. I found it absolutely fascinating. I just love how this sort of he's seen as being the person who freed Britain from Roman rule. And yeah, even if he did, that wasn't his intention. It's just how that's developed into what it is. I find that absolutely hilarious and fascinating. Just like I open this segment with, I close it all the same. Mm. It is always a treat when you take us into a part of history or the aisle that you call your home, especially when we start looking into its deep roots and antiquity. It is, yeah. And we're getting to the point now, as I mentioned, where it's not going to be Roman Britain for that much longer. We're going to start getting some Germanic people, some Angles, some Saxons. And things are really going to start changing in Britain because that Germanic influence is coming to the coming to the island, <laughs> which has had a very lasting effect. Here. You know, it's called England, Angoland. That's where that name comes from. And that's going to be a big old impact. God. Beautiful as always, Patrick. We're getting there Ooh, to your country, and we'll get to your country soon enough, Paul. I promise. It's just going to take a bit of time. <laughs> <laughs> Hoorah, Devil Dog. Good job. <laughs> Us here, you there. We're back right after a word from one. Anna Domini. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally, primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT. And of course, on YouTube, search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at PKD in history, as well as my reader submitted World War II QA column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II related questions, which, if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care. Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash ADHistoryPodcast and Instagram as AD History Podcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick... Thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.